you have a Bible, you please turn to Romans 8, and you will see the scripture on the screens. This is the Word of God, Romans 8, 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning and we all have our, our hurts and our boo-boos as it were. Some of us physically, some of us emotionally, some of us relationally. And Lord, we pray that through the power of your spirit at work in this place, we would see that our present sufferings cannot be compared with the glory that is ours in Christ. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. I don't know about you, but it seemed to me like the year 2014 has been a year with um, an unusually high number of um, unfortunate, sad events. Perhaps it's just my take on the year. But when we think about the year 2014, I'm reminded of the recent terrorist attack on a school in Pakistan. I'm reminded of the actions of ISIS in Iraq this year, particularly how Christians were treated in that country, are continuing to be treated. The Malaysian airliner that disappeared over the ocean, the jet that was shot down over Ukraine, and more recently, the two New York police officers who were tragically killed just a few weeks back. Events that um, we don't have to think about, we don't have to analyze to think of the... Um, the sadness and, and the wickedness so often involved in those events. And there are also events that, that perhaps are a little murkier in our minds. Events like the death of Michael Brown or the events that transpired in Ferguson, Missouri. And whatever our personal opinion of those events are, and I don't presume to, to know what happened, we know that the world is not the way it should, it should be. We know that the world we're living in is not the way it's supposed to be. God designed his world to be free of all racism, all bigotry, all injustice, all wickedness, all generational sin passed from one generation to the other. And we can't help but look around our broken world and look at the suffering and think this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And in our passage today, Paul is speaking to Christians who are familiar with suffering. This is an audience in Rome 
uh, that that knew what it meant to be persecuted for being followers of Jesus. This is an audience that knew what it meant to suffer. Just one uh, example of that was that at the time of Paul's writing, the infant mortality rate for for a culture in that time would have been much higher than it is today. These are people who knew what it meant to lose a child, lose an infant and be persecuted for their faith. There was a real cost to following Jesus in this time. And so Paul is writing to his audience and he's saying, I know the sufferings that you are experience are experiencing are painful. I know that. But I want you to see through the eyes of faith and through this thing called hope, which we are going to look at a little bit later, that the glory that awaits us is so much greater than our sufferings. Now, just three points from this text today. Present groaning, future glory, and patient hope. Present groaning, we see this in the first four verses, future glory, verses 21 to 23, and patient hope. First, present groaning. In verse 18, Paul makes this statement, and it's a statement, maybe we just read it very quickly, we don't think about it much, but he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And you may think, well, this is just something an apostle would say, this is something a pastor would say, or a missionary would say, and, um, you know, but pastor... um, How do I know this isn't just a platitude? Paul is just sort of patting us on the head and saying, you know, suck it up. Be tough. Don't complain about your sufferings. Does he really understand my sufferings? And if there was one person who we could not level this charge at, it would be the Apostle Paul. Paul knew what it meant to suffer. Paul knew physical pain. He knew emotional pain. He knew psychological pain. He knew knew what it meant Uh, to be on the brink of death. He knew what it meant to have people who wanted him killed. He knew what it meant to be homeless, to be shipwrecked, to be uh, alone, lost from from his friends, separated. He knew what it meant to be in jail, and he certainly knew what it meant to lose those he loved for the faith. And it's this same man, this same Paul, who says our sufferings now are not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. Does that mean he's minimizing our sufferings? No. What it means is he's not minimizing our sufferings. Instead, he's maximizing the glory that awaits us when we go to be with Jesus. Just think about this. Those of us here, we may live to be 70, 80, 90 with modern day technology. Who knows? Maybe many of us will make it to 100. But even then, it's a finite period of time. The hope of glory is an infinite period of time. Imagine your best day. Maybe you can think of that day right now. What's your best day? Think of your best day. And think of a, think of a day a thousand times better than that that never ends. That's glory. What will heaven be like? Not many of us would admit this, I don't think. But I think for many Christians in the world, our view of heaven is this sort of disembodied, ethereal world where we're floating on clouds and we all have a harp. I don't know why it's a harp. I don't know why there's no other instruments out there, but it seems to be a harp. Um, And we have wings and we're wearing all white and we never have to wash the clothes. And um, and it's it's this sort of disembodied world that doesn't really resemble our current existence. And the truth is that that's hallmark theology, not biblical theology. Because that's not at all what the Bible teaches. 
especially right here in this passage. Paul says creation is groaning. What does that mean? It means God is not going to scrap this creation and throw it in the trash heap. He is going to restore it and renew it to the purpose for which he designed it, just as he is going to restore us after the image of his son, Jesus Christ, to dwell in that new creation. Paul says even the creation is groaning. What does he mean by the creation? He doesn't mean humans because he, he doesn't mean believers or any other humans. He talks about us in a moment. And he doesn't mean the spiritual world of angels and demons. He means the material world. He means plants and mountains and lions and cats and caterpillars and dolphins and starfish and eagles and redwood trees and rocks and rivers and everything else you can think of. And, of course, Paul is personifying many of these inanimate things. He's personifying it to say that creation itself is groaning to experience the freedom for which it was designed to do. Now, it's hard to know exactly what Paul is getting at, but we do know this. All the way back at Genesis 3, at the fall, when humankind introduced sin into the world, it says that God cursed the ground. And so ever since then, uh, creation is like an out-of-tune instrument. It's not that creation is going to be destroyed and, and done away with. Rather, it needs to be tuned. It needs to be restored. It needs to be made new. Paul is not saying that we will be out there with harps and wings and a never-ending soundtrack of amazing grace and um, this disembodied view of heaven. Rather, the idea is human beings in resurrected, resurrection bodies dwelling in a restored creation where everything functions like it should. What's an example of, of the futility, the frustration that cre- creation has been subjected to? Think of the BP oil spill a few years back. The spill had devastating consequences for the ocean, the, the marine life, as well as humans, the livelihood of fishermen and other industries. And, of course, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to clean up. It's an example of the futility, the frustration that currently goes on in this human creation relationship that we have in a fallen world. In a new creation, creation, uh, the nature and man will function perfectly together. The uh, tsunami that hit Malaysia, Hurricane Katrina, all of these things, an example of creation... um, as functioning as it is not designed to function in God's original design. What creation needs is not to be restored. And anyone who says, you know, it's okay to um, litter or it's okay to treat this earth however we want because one day God's going to burn it up and we're just going to be in heaven has not read their Bible. We are called to care for creation. And one day creation will be restored and we will be the caretakers of that creation as we ourselves are restored with no sin. G.K. Chesterton, I wonder if you've heard that name. He's kind of like a C.S. Lewis, just a man who um, had incredible insight into God's world, um, not a theologian, uh, a writer of literature, gave this explanation for why the world is the way it is. And there's a slide here from Chesterton. Um, should be on the screens there. Uh, can we go to the next? Uh, oh, there it is. Excuse me. Chesterton says this. The fall is a view of life. Now listen to this. Listen to his logic. It is not only the only enlightening, but the only encouraging view of life. It holds as against the only real alternative philosophies, those of the Buddhist or the pessimist or the Promethean, that we have misused a good world 
and not merely been entrapped in a bad one. Do you see what Chesterton's saying? It's not as though the world is on all the death and destruction and everything else that we see that's wrong with this world. It's not as though we're stuck in a world like that. Rather, it's a good world that's been corrupted by sin. Happiness is not only a hope, but is also in some strange sense a memory. Now listen to this. We are all kings in exile. Hope that resonates with you. When you see a world that's not supposed to be the way that we see it with um, child trafficking and Hurricane Katrina's and um, racism and, and all the sorts of things, all the ways and cancer and all the ways sin manifests itself in the world today. We cry out, Lord, deliver us, bring us to glory. And God says, I will, I will restore this. It's not as though we are stuck on this world with no hope. But rather, the fall is actually an encouraging view of life because if you believe that a good world was corrupted, you can also believe that God will restore his creation. And that takes us to future glory. God's creation is currently subject to decay. But Paul tells us, starting in verse 21, that creation is awaiting the revelation of the sons of God and that what awaits us is a world of unimaginable Beauty and goodness. Paul is so excited, he almost seems to get tongue-tied. If you look in the Greek, there's so many words together in this one sentence. He says, creation awaits the revelation of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is what is coming. Deliverance from pain. Kids, when Mr. Gary was giving his his children's message, um, he he gave you all band-aids, right? And kids, I know that you know why... We have Band-Aids. It's because when you get hurt, when you get a boo-boo, you need to put a Band-Aid on that boo-boo. And sometimes you like to put 25 other Band-Aids going all the way up the arm. And then mom and dad have to buy another box. But, um, you know, you get, you get, you get a, a boo-boo and you put a Band-Aid on it. And your body begins to heal. But with some boo-boos, some pains, there's a scar that's left that reminds you of that pain. And uh, kids uh, and adults, all of us here, we have scars of different kinds. Many of us adults have scars that are not physical scars. And the truth is that some of these scars will not be healed in this life. Some of these scars we will bear with us until we go and meet our maker. But this is the promise. The promise is that we may bear them for a finite life on this earth, but we will not bear them for all of eternity. Kids, the Bible says this in Revelation 21, 4. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Imagine a world with no pain and no crying and no sadness and no disappointment and no depression and no dementia and no injustice and no poverty and no brokenness and no murder and no violence and no relational brokenness. That is glory. And that is what awaits us in Christ. That is our hope. And the beautiful thing is God himself will be right there with us. And kids, you won't ever have to ask your brother or sister to forgive you for smacking them because you won't ever do that. Because there won't be any sin in this world. Sin will never come into that world. We will never die. And we will never grow tired of walking with God and accomplishing his purposes together with one another, forever and ever. And let me tell you something, kids. You may have a little scar, and you may see your mom and dad has, has a little scar maybe somewhere on their body where they got hurt. 
And in glory, there's not going to be any scars on us. But there will be one person who will still have a scar or multiple scars. And that's Jesus himself who will have scars on his hands and on his feet as an eternal reminder to all of us of his love, of what he did for us to die for us on the cross so that all of this creation, including us, could be redeemed. The scars will forever speak of his love. You see, Paul tells us in verse 21, creation will be set free when we receive our adoption into our resurrection bodies. This is what the Bible clearly teaches. God values our bodies. God is not going to um, let us spend all eternity as as ghosts or spirits or something like that. Rather, uh, even if if you die now, your spirit will go to be with God. But even then, the Bible says that's not a state of completeness. That's a state of sinlessness, but not completeness. Completeness it will be when Jesus comes again in the second advent and we are all resurrected and we receive our resurrection bodies. Sometimes my kids will ask me a question about heaven. Like, Daddy, will there be Legos in heaven? It's a great question. And um, I, I, I hope the answer is something like yes, and they will put themselves back in the box. When you just snap your finger, that's it. That's all you'll have to do. But it's hard to imagine what glory is going to be like, isn't it? The Bible gives us some hints. The Bible says in Revelation um, Heaven comes down to earth. A glorious city comes down to earth. And instead of this picture of clouds and harps and so forth, we have a beautiful city where we're dwelling with a garden in the middle and God himself is there. And in terms of other things, what exactly it will be like, it's hard to say. But there will be no destruction causing hurricanes or there will be no creation out of whack causing suffering. Instead, Humanity and creation will exist perfectly in harmony together. And who knows, maybe we'll be able to fly. Maybe we'll be able to dive down to the bottom of the ocean. For the record, I think there will be pets in heaven. Um, But it will be wonderful. That's what we know. Alfred Lord Tennyson, the poet, said this, Nature red in tooth and claw. And what Tennyson meant was that when we look around in nature, we see so much violence and in the in the new creation, there will be the, the, it will not be like that. There will be a joyful coexistence between humanity and nature, and we will treat nature with respect. And nature will yield to man's rule. And in all of these things, Christ will be exalted as we accomplish His purposes for all eternity, and we glorify His name. And I think oftentimes what's true, and this is true for myself too, is that when I have a small view of heaven. The problem is not what the Bible says about heaven. The problem is my own heart and my own limited conception of what is awaiting us. And oftentimes here, we're, here's an instance where we can learn from our children because oftentimes we think, well, uh, imagination and wondering, and we, uh, that's for kids. And they come up with all these crazy ideas and they have all these wonderful things they think of, but we're adults and you know, we can begin to lose our imagination. But here our children can teach us because... Again, while we don't know exactly what glory is going to be like, it is going to be unimaginably better than we can imagine. That is what awaits us, future glory. What do we do in the meantime? We have patient hope. Paul encourages us to wait with patient hope. The creation is not the only one that is groaning. Paul says in verse 23 of our text, 
the, the Christian is also groaning. There's a sense, brothers and sisters, in which you and I should be groaning too. When we look around and we see this world and we see all the injustice and we see all the things that aren't right, and we should say, Lord, this is not how you want your world to be. Come again, Jesus. Make it right. And until you come, help me to be an agent that does that. Help me to be an agent of kindness, an agent of justice, someone who has integrity at my work, someone who demonstrates love to others, someone who reaches out to my neighbor, someone who shares the gospel. Help me to bring more and more of your kingdom. Your kingdom came with Jesus, but it's not going to come again fully until you return. Help me to usher in that kingdom. Help me to wait with patient hope. You see, our future is one we cannot see. Paul says if you could see your hope, if you can see a, your hope, you don't, you're not waiting for it anymore. You have it. It's no longer hope. But instead, we cannot see it, so we look with the eyes of faith. And Paul, oftentimes in his letters, he has a triad of words he uses. He says faith, hope, and love. And we talk about uh, faith. We talk about love. We do talk about hope, but I do think in the church we could be talking about hope more because it's a very crucial word to our Christian lives. And Paul gives an analogy to describe this. And, and uh, you, moms and dads, you know this, and relatives and friends, everybody knows this because we've all been awaiting, uh, uh, awaiting a child to be born, you know, someone, a relative or parents, you know, for your own children. You're awaiting the birth of a child. You know what that's like. You're waiting and there's so much excitement. You can't wait to meet this new child. And then comes the birth. And then comes the groaning and the pain and the agony. And I can tell you that when my children were born, I wanted an epidural. And I wasn't even the one giving birth. Okay? Shows you how weak I am. How tough my wife is. Um, that's a very fit analogy to describe the place we are right now. We are in groaning. We are at that place or we are looking ahead on the horizon. And you know, parents, when a child is born, there is nothing but joy in that room. When, that he- when a healthy child is born and is in your arms, nothing but joy. Your life has changed forever. And that is the image that Paul gives us here. We are in groaning now. We are waiting. We are experiencing the suffering of living in a broken world. But when birth happens, when we are with Jesus forever, it's all going to go away. And we are going to experience joy and new life. And how do we know we're going to experience that? What's our hope now? The, the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves are the first fruits of the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the down payment to our souls that says to us, these things are reality and will come true. The Holy Spirit that lives inside of us now is that down payment that reminds us that glory is awaiting us. Good things are coming, beauty and wonder in a sinless world. I think that waiting patiently, tell me if you agree with this, is not exactly the chief virtue of the New York metro culture. Patience, waiting. And I think this is increasingly true of all of America, maybe the world, but we don't like to wait. We want things now. We want to get where we're going quickly and we want to achieve our goals ahead of schedule. But we all need to hear Paul's words here. Paul is calling us to steadfastness. He's calling us to words we don't use much anymore like constancy, like inner fortitude that comes 
through abiding in the vine that is the Lord Jesus and being filled with his Holy Spirit and walking with him so that we are able to weather the storms of life so that we are not tossed back and forth by the wind of every doctrine and other challenges that come in life. He's calling us to patient hope. And God has given us all the means that we need. He's given us his word. He's given us his sacraments. He's given us prayer. And he's given us one another in this church at GRC and in growth groups and in Bible studies and in um, dinners where we get together and all sorts of other things to encourage one another and to remind each other to, to stay strong with patient hope. When we look around us in our culture and we see an instant gratification gratification culture where patience is on the endangered virtue list instead god calls us to patient hope to avail ourselves of the means that he has given us his word prayer the sacraments each other the holy spirit that speaks in our hearts and to walk with him listen to paul in romans 5 3 we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance character in character hope, and hope does not disappoint. The object of our hope is glory. Eternity with Christ and his people in our resurrection body in a new heavens and a new earth. The attitude of our hope should be one of patient expectation. I don't know what God has in store for you in 2015. Um, some of you, you, you can understand this suffering. You may have just had a Christmas without a loved one for the first time. Or you may be experiencing some of this suffering in a very acute way. And God's word for you today is to cling to him in hope. Is to look to glory. To know what is awaiting you. The book of Hebrews says our hope is like an anchor. What a, what a powerful image that is. Because you all know what an anchor does. It keeps the ship safe and protected and steady in one place. And that is the role of hope in our lives. May God fill us with that hope, that steadfastness, that constancy of walking with him this 2015, that he may receive glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for hope. Thank you for the hope that you've given us, Lord. Help all of us, myself included, Lord, to wait for it patiently, to have patience and trust and faith in your promises. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.